Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings. And we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Less than a month ago, Gallup released an article entitled U.S. Church Membership Falls Below Majority for the First Time. These historic findings were based on an annual poll that Gallup has been conducting in America since the 1930s. So in 2020, last year, Gallup found that for the very first time ever, A minority of Americans said they belong to a church, synagogue, or a mosque. Only 47% claim membership to a religious congregation in 2020. As you can see from the chart, compare that with just 55% five years ago, 70% 20 years ago. Here is this chart from Gallup representing their findings all the way back to the 1930s. So you can see that for the first seven decades of this poll, Membership hovered around 70%, but in, as of the year 2000, we begin to see a significant drop-off. And as many have been predicting over the last 20 years, this steady decline finally led to this watershed moment where less than half of Americans now consider themselves a part of a religious congregation. Now, according to Gallup, And to many other religion experts, the biggest factor in this drop is the rise of people who identify as atheists or agnostics or simply claim to be unaffiliated. These folks are commonly referred to as, quote, the nuns, because they answer none when asked to identify their religious preference. If you want to learn more about the nuns, this is a great book by Ryan Burge called The Nuns. Ryan is a professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University. He's also a pastor in the American Baptist Church, so he really sees this from both sides. He's a regular contributor to 538 and Christianity Today. It's a great book called The Nuns where they came from, who they are, and where they're going. So if you want more information about this group, that's a great resource. But here's the thing. You and I, we most likely know someone who would consider themselves a nun, or you may even identify as one yourself. Unsurprisingly, nuns make up a larger percentage of the younger population in America. So just 10 years, in the last 10 years, Congregational membership among generations has dropped by five points with baby boomers, seven points with Gen X, 15 points with millennials, and then Gen Z is almost universally predicted to be the most unaffiliated generation ever or have the most, the highest population of nuns. So the question is, why is this happening? Why are people fleeing from organized religion at unprecedented rates? Now, there are many theories, but the one that I resonate with the most and I found to be anecdotally true is I've had hundreds of conversations about leaving church with people over the last few years is articulated really well by Russell Moore. Dr. Moore is an American theologian, an ethicist, and a preacher who's currently the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is the public policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. I give you all those credentials to give even further credence to his words. You see, Dr. Moore, he's an evangelical pastor and an executive leader in the largest and one of the most conservative Protestant denominations in the world. 
Here's what he said in a recent article called Losing Our Religion. Almost everyone in the world of American religion has spent the last couple of weeks thinking through what Gallup has just revealed, that poll I was just talking about. That for the first time, since they've been studying the topic, less than half the country belongs to a church of any kind. We now see young evangelicals walking away from, away from evangelicalism, not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. The problem now is that is not that people think the church's way of life is too demanding or too morally rigorous, but that they have come to think the church doesn't believe its own moral teachings. If people reject the church because they reject Jesus and the gospel, we should be saddened but not surprised. But what happens when people reject the church because they think we reject Jesus and the gospel? And what if people don't leave the church because they disapprove of Jesus, but because they've read the Bible and have come to the conclusion that the church itself would disapprove of Jesus? We are losing a generation, Dr. Moore says, not because they are secularists, but because they believe we are. People are fleeing the church in mass, not because they don't take the words and works of Jesus seriously, but because they don't see the church taking them seriously. This diagnosis from Russell Moore is not new. Frederick Douglass was born into slavery before escaping to freedom as a young adult and becoming an abolitionist. His cruelest masters were devout Christians leading him to say this in his autobiography. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. But between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. Even Gandhi famously said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. This is not true of everyone, but as I'm going to talk about in a second, the temptation is to just be like, oh, this is other people's fault. This is like that other church that we don't really like. It's, it's them. We don't, we don't need to worry about us. No, we need to be asking, what can we do about this collectively as the church? How can we be a part of moving the American church away from the Christianity that resembles very little of Christ and helping reorient her around the words and works of Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because I believe the final moments of Jesus' time on earth give us the key to answering that question. Now, today marks a, a big moment in our year in the life of Jesus. We have one final series that starts in a couple of weeks where we'll discuss this mandate Jesus gave to all of his followers called the Great Commission. You've probably heard of that if you have some church background. But today, we covered the final story in the life of Jesus on earth, the day he ascended back into heaven and was seated on his throne, King Jesus. Now, the ascension is such a vital moment in Jesus's life and such an important part of the Christian faith that it makes it into basically every one of the creeds and confessions of the early church. But even though it's really important, there actually isn't all that much in scripture about it. Just a few verses in Luke's account of Jesus' life, and then one in Luke's account of the first church, but commonly called Acts. So here's what we have. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. That's it. Four verses. 
That's all we have. Now, the ascension is important for its own reasons, right? It shows us that Jesus is who he said he was, God in the flesh, God incarnate, and also that he does what he says he's going to do. He was going to rise from the dead and return to his heavenly throne. This, this confirms all of that. But I think the key for what we've been talking about as we reflected on this new poll from Gallup and the rise of religiously unaffiliated folks, people fleeing the church in mass, the key for what we've been talking about is found in the words of Jesus right before he ascends. We see them in Acts chapter one. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Jesus says. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them, hid him from their sight. Now, Acts 1.8, the first verse there is a fairly famous verse. So if you went to kind of like a missions-minded church growing up, chances are that verse was on a sign somewhere in your church or adorning a wall. Now, these are important words from Jesus, right? Not just because of their content, but because they are the ones that Jesus chooses to speak right before he ascends. They are the words that Jesus chooses to leave us with. Or to put it another way, these final words from Christ outline the enduring mission given to his followers, both then and now. In these words from Jesus, he gives us the power the purpose, and the plan. We're going to talk about what those are in just a second. He gives us the power, the purpose, and the plan. It's been a decade since I've been a part of a Southern Baptist church, but I still have some good three-point alliterations in me. Power, purpose, and plan. The first part of the verse talks about the power. Here's what he says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the power to fulfill God's purpose and plan for us, it's not found in our own strength. It's found in deep reliance on the spirit of God. That's why Jesus told his disciples the night before he laid down his life. Here's what he said. I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. So Jesus says, I'm going to leave, but I'm not going to leave you alone. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to live inside his spirit, his spirit, to live inside of every follower of Christ then and forever. Now, it sounds crazy to say, but that is actually even better than Jesus being with us on earth. He says as much that same night. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Think about it like this. The fullness of God went from dwelling among us to dwelling in us. It's better. And in his last words to us, Jesus says that this spirit of God within us is where we find the power to carry out his purpose for us. So what is his purpose for us? Well, that's next. The purpose. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on, upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So our purpose, according to Jesus, is very simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. We are his witnesses. 
Now, what does that word mean? Well, you may or may not know, but the New Testament was originally written in Greek, the language that was spoken in the first century Near East where Jesus lived and traveled. So this Greek word for witness that Jesus uses here is actually the word martis, and it's a legal term. In a court, a martis was someone who could expertly testify about a case, listen, because they experienced it themselves. They didn't hear about it. It wasn't secondhand or thirdhand. It was firsthand. They didn't just know about it. They were personally changed by it. So think about it like this. We are able to witness about the grace, hope, and love of Jesus because we've been personally changed by it. That's what Jesus is calling us to. That is our purpose, witnesses. Jesus is not calling us to simply be outside observers of his work, commentating on it. No, he is certainly not calling us to co-opt his name and use it for our own purposes. No. Jesus is calling anyone who considers themselves his follower to be an active participant in his kingdom work, a witness. If you've been with us at all throughout this year in the life of Jesus, you've heard us talk about what this kingdom work is. Jesus lays it out over and over and over again throughout his life. Here are some of the favorite ones we've walked through. Jesus said in his very first sermon ever, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Later, he says, for God did not send his son, that was him, into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Lastly, John 10, 10, the famous verse, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. See, God put on flesh and came to earth as Jesus to bring salvation and fullness of life to everyone, especially to those who've been pushed to the margins of society. So this is his kingdom work that he has now called us to. This us, this collective us, the the capital C church, we are supposed to be active participants in it, witnesses, martyrs, not just outside observers. So that's the power, the Holy Spirit, and the purpose, witnesses. Lastly, Jesus gives us the plan. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Now, this is kind of confusing because those places may or may not really mean anything to us. They have very specific uh, direct application to the first people hearing them and a very specific indirect application to all of us. These words are transcendent because it's important to know that this plan from God is not new. From the very beginning, God's desire has been that everyone would experience his blessing, his salvation, and the fullness of life that he offers. You might remember Abraham from the Old Testament, kind of the father of the nation of Israel. Well, when God calls Abraham out to become this patriarch of Israel, he didn't do so because he liked Abraham more than other people. He didn't do so because he wanted to form a nation that he preferred over other people. No, he was working through one family to bless all the families. He was working through one people group to bless all the people groups. Genesis chapter 12 records these words from God to Abraham. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And listen, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He says, Abraham, not blessing you just so you can be blessed, and blessing you so you can bless others. For the disciples who heard this plan from the lips of Jesus right before he ascended, the message would have been crystal clear because they were in Jerusalem at the time. Start where you are right now in Jerusalem. Be my witnesses here and now in your everyday lives. And then spread out or send out people to share my love and do my kingdom work in Judea and Samaria and all over the world to the very ends of the earth. Now, it's really important that he mentions Samaria. This isn't talked about all that much in this verse, but it's vital for us to understand. So he could have just said kind of Jerusalem, Judea was a little bit bigger surrounding community, and then the ends of the earth. Those would have been pretty easy concentric circles. But he mentions Samaria, which for us, we just think about it, and, or we just hear the verse, and we don't really think about it all that much. But for them, it would have been radical because Samaria was kind of home to the people that the Israelites, the ones he was talking to, had the most enmity with. They hated each other. Samaritans and Israelites did not get along. So Jesus is not just saying, hey, the people you like in Jerusalem, the people you like in Judea, the people you like to the very ends of the earth. He's saying, no, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. It echoes, if you remember when Jesus said, the most important thing is to love God and love your neighbor. And the religious leader asked, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan making the most hated person in that community, a Samaritan, the hero, the most Christ-like figure in that story. It reminds the disciples back when he says, not just Jerusalem, Judea, and uh, and the ends of the earth, but Samaria, the places where you don't want to go, the people that you may not get along with, those folks as well. I want them to have my fullness of life that I'm offering. The same plan is true for us. Start wherever you are and go wherever the spirit leads. Start where you are right now. Love, serve, witness, do God's kingdom work wherever you are right now. And then be open as the spirit leads you, especially to those that you may not have that much contact with that are on the margins of society or that you might have some issues with. God is calling you to deep love of them as well. So with those final words, Jesus ascended into heaven and the most unlikely faith movement in history began. The next few passages in Acts tell us that the 120 people who heard those words from Jesus, Acts 1, 8, and 9, as he ascended, 120 people, they went back to Jerusalem where they were staying to pray and prepare for the coming of the Holy Spirit, the power that Jesus had promised. Then, just a few days later, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, just as he said he would, and the first church is born. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, they begin accomplishing the purpose and the plan that Jesus gave to them. Now, things certainly weren't perfect in that first church. You just read the book of Acts, you'll see it had some ups and downs. It's impossible to be perfect, right? Because the church is filled with imperfect people. But that first church Man, they fully embraced their God-given power and purpose and plan. And y'all, the results were incredible. On the very first day of the church, it grew from 120, that little group, to over 3,000 people. And over the next couple of hundred years, against all odds, they grew exponentially. 
even with the Roman government persecuting and killing followers of Jesus left and right, by the year 300 AD, historians estimate that there were over 6 million Christians. 120 to 6 million, even with the most powerful people in the world trying to snuff it out. But then everything changed with a Roman emperor named Constantine the Great. In 313 AD, Constantine decriminalized Christianity, and then shortly afterwards, he actually made Christianity the national religion of Rome, which might seem like a good thing at first glance, but very quickly, Constantine began to co-opt the name of Jesus for his own purposes. You see, he claimed to have this vision of a cross in the sky. And he said, when he saw the cross in the sky, it was accompanied by these words, by this sign, you shall conquer. By this sign, you shall conquer. Constantine said his vision from the Christian God gave him the divine blessing and mandate to conquer and kill anyone who stood in his way. Constantine took the cross which had become universally known as a symbol of sacrificial love and made it a symbol of conquest and war. Now, the church's commitment to Jesus's power and purpose and plan has been kind of a roller coaster ride ever since. But my goal today is not to enumerate all of the issues the church has had for the last 17 centuries. My goal today is to help the church, us, right now, take a hard look at how we are doing when it comes to our commitment to Jesus's power and purpose and plan today. And to put it bluntly, y'all, I don't think we're doing a very good job. Jesus told us to be witnesses for his glory, but often we've become witnesses for our own glory instead. He called us to build his kingdom, but far too many of us have been worried about building our own little kingdoms. He said the most important thing is to love God and love our neighbor, but we have fallen in love with power and money and partisanship instead. And as you can see from all the statistics I shared earlier, people are starting to notice more and more, and it's driving them away. The church is supposed to be the representatives of Jesus on earth. Scripture calls us the body of Christ. The things he did, we are now called to do, empowered by his spirit. We're struggling. In his book called The Jesus I Never Knew that I've been quoting throughout our year in the life of Jesus, we actually gave it to all of our group leaders when this year first started as well. The author, Philip Yancey, says it like this. The church is where God lives. What Jesus brought to a few, healing grace, the good news of the message of God's love, the church can now bring to all. And Jesus knew that the world he left behind would include the poor, the hungry, the prisoners, and the sick. The decrepit state of the world did not surprise him. He made plans to cope with it. Here was the plan. A long-range plan and a short-range plan. The long-range plan involves his return in power and great glory to straighten out planet and earth, this mission of restoration that we talk about all the time. The short-range plan, short plan means turning it over to the ones who will ultimately usher in the liberation of the cosmos. He ascended so that we would take his place. Let me say that again. Jesus ascended so that we, the church, empowered by the Spirit, would take his place. We would be his witnesses. 
Where is God when it hurts? I have often asked. But the answer is actually another question. Where is the church when it hurts? Where is the church when life starts to hurt? Far too often, the church is inflicting the pain rather than remedying it. Rather than liberating people, we have often been complicit in their oppression. Now, here's the thing. Here's the key that I do not want you to miss this morning. Most of us will acknowledge that, right? We know enough about our country's history and current events to understand that that's true, that the church has struggled, to put it mildly, a, a number of different times. But we are so quick to point the finger at that other church or those other Christians. They are the problem. They are the ones who care more about their own power than the power of the Holy Spirit. They are the ones who turn their back on Jesus's purpose in favor of their own. They are the ones who have forsaken God's plan and gone their own way. But my friends, that's too easy. It's too easy to watch capital insurrectionists carrying the Christian flag and say, oh, they aren't really Christians. They, 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 they don't matter. I'm not, I'm not affiliated with them at all. They... they, they They're out there. That problem is over there. It's too easy to listen to pastors claim that George Floyd doesn't deserve justice and say, oh, those pastors, they don't don't share the same faith I do. It's too easy to see churches excluding people based on their race or gender or sexual orientation or political affiliation and say, those churches are the ones with the real problems. Now, I'm not saying that those things aren't egregious and in complete opposition to the ways of Jesus. They absolutely are. And if you know me, if you've listened to this at all, I've said that numerous times. But there is nothing Christ-like about blame shifting. There is nothing Christ-like about using other people's bad behavior to excuse our own. Using other people's bad behavior to neglect the vital work of introspection in our own lives and in our own church. Here's Yancey again with some beautifully convicting words. Why don't we look more like the church Jesus described? Why does the body of Christ so faintly resemble him? If Jesus could foresee such disasters as the Crusades, the Inquisition, the Christian slave trade, apartheid, why did he ascend in the first place? I cannot provide a confident answer to such questions, for I am a part of the problem. Examine closely my query takes on a distressingly personal cast. Not, why don't they resemble Christ? But why do I so poorly resemble him? The Franciscan friar, Richard Rohr, talks about this same thing when he calls Christians to live in light of the resurrection. Resurrected people, he calls us. He says, resurrected people prayerfully bear witness against injustice and evil, but also agree to compassionately hold their own complicity in that same evil. It's not all over there. It is here. It is our problem, not just theirs. We're actually energized by having an enemy, someone to hate, because it takes away the inner shame and relieves our inner anxiety. It gives us, strangely enough, a very false sense of control and superiority because we've spotted the evil and thank God it's over there. As long as they are the problem, we can keep our focus on changing them, correcting them, expelling them as the contaminating element. Then we can sit in a reasonably 
comfortable position. Now, I believe it's vitally important to hold other Christians accountable and that we must not stay silent when people bearing the name of Jesus are doing the complete opposite of what he called us to do. But my friends, it does not end there. We are doing it wrong if all we do is call other people out without ever taking a look in the mirror. Let's say that again. We are doing it wrong if all we ever do is call other people out and we never take a look in the mirror. As Rohr said, we must bear witness against injustice and evil, but we must also examine our own complicity. So that's what we're going to do today. I have some questions for us to prayerfully consider as we try to understand how we are doing when it comes to Jesus's power and purpose and plan today. So wherever you are, however you're watching or listening to this right now, I'm going to give you these questions, give you some prompts. I really want you to prayerfully consider them. So the first one is about that power. Am I trusting the power of the spirit or am I relying on myself? Am I trusting the power of the spirit or am I relying on myself? Take a moment. Ask Jesus to really search your heart. Ask him to bring to mind any areas of your life where you are pushing the spirit away and you're only relying on yourself. Maybe you do a pretty good job of relying on the Holy Spirit at home when you're with your roommate or your boyfriend or girlfriend or your family. Maybe maybe you do good when you're kind of with the people that know you the best and love you most, but when you get to work, when you're with those kind of friends, acquaintances, peers, that relying on the spirit goes out the window. Or maybe you do good when you're having small group or you're at church, but when you go home, you wrestle all that control back away from the spirit. You are doing things in your own power and your own way. Ask Jesus to reveal those places in your heart. Second, purpose. Am I living out the ways of Jesus or am I doing things my own way? Am I living out the ways of Jesus, that kingdom stuff we've been talking about, or am I doing things my own way? Again, ask Jesus to search your heart. Ask him to bring to mind any areas of your life where you are just doing things your own way. What's getting in the way of you pursuing the ways of Jesus? Is it pride? Is it this idea that you're self-sufficient? You don't need anyone else. You don't need to listen to anyone else that your idea is best, your way is best. That may uh, transcend just the people around you all the way to God himself. Your way is best, not God's. Your purpose is more important than the purpose Jesus has given you. Is it lust? Is it that the, the things that you want are getting in the way. They're, they're clouding your vision when it comes to pursuing the ways of Jesus. Is it materialism? Did you know the only thing that Jesus talks more about than money is God's kingdom? All that stuff we've just been talking about. The thing he talks about the second most of anything else is money because he knows how quickly money and materialism can co-opt our heart, can turn us to our own way instead of the ways of Jesus. Purpose. And then lastly, here's plan. Am I serving where I am and open to where the Spirit leads, or am I trying to control everything 
myself. Take a final moment. Ask Jesus to search your heart one more time. And then ask, where have you been placed by God right now? Who are the people he has placed in your life right now? Are you loving them? Are you serving them well? Or are you always looking past where God has you right now to whatever might be next? I just can't wait till I graduate. I just can't wait till we move. I can't wait till I start this new job. I can't wait until this, that, or the other, something in the future that's next. And that has blinded you to the place where God has put you right now and called you to love and serve and be his witness. You're trying to control everything in your own power, just waiting for whatever's next. Or are you letting the spirit lead you where you are right now? We're going to begin wrapping up this week's gathering by singing a song called Everything and Nothing Less. It's a song of surrender. It echoes Paul's words from his letter to the church in Rome. It's a song of offering ourselves in service to the kingdom of God, offering ourselves in the power of the spirit to be his witnesses. And I want you to remember that this hard work of introspection of asking Jesus to show you the places in your life where you are not turned to him, repenting of those ways, going a different direction. This is not just a one-time exercise. I don't want you to just do it for like three minutes right now and then never do it again. This is a posture that anyone who is serious about following Jesus needs to stay constantly committed to. So I want to encourage you to respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit as we sing together right now. Don't just say the words. Don't just read the words. Proclaim them. Make them the prayer of your heart this morning. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing. God, we thank you for this beautiful story. We don't have much on what that crazy, beautiful moment was like where you ascended back into heaven as Jesus, God, but but what we do have is so important. Help us not overlook it. If we've got a bunch of church background and we're super familiar with Acts 1-8 and it just goes one ear and out the other, don't let it happen today. Help us grab a hold of your power and your purpose and your plan for us, God. And that we would be your witnesses. We would be the body of Christ doing the kingdom work wherever you have placed us. We would love and serve people really well. God, make it true of us as individuals and make it true of our church. God, I pray that people would not encounter us or encounter Restore and think, oh, these folks don't take Jesus seriously. I've read about him. I've read about his ways and they are going in a totally opposite direction. No, God, make it true of us that we are committed to your purpose, committed to be your witnesses, empowered by your spirit where we are right now. We offer ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.